Please would you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. As usual, there are page numbers on the notice sheet if that helps you. And if you don't have a Bible, there are still some English and Chinese ones on the shelves at the back. It really will be a big help to you to have Deuteronomy chapter 6 open in front of you. And have a look at verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Have you got verse 4 in front of you? Take notice of what it says. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Are you hearing? Are you listening? Are you Israel? It says, hear, O Israel. It's calling on Israel to hear. So are you Israel? Because that's who it's speaking to. Are you part of Israel? You might say, well, no, I'm not Jewish. Most people here aren't Jewish. I know that some are. You're not an Israelite. But that's who this is addressing. Is it addressing you? Is it speaking to you? Are you part of the group that this part of God's word is for? Well, this is speaking to God's people, and they were called Israel in the Old Testament, in the first part of the Bible. And they were called, in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, they were sometimes called Israel, but more often called the church. Here we have words from God speaking to God's people, and they tell us who God is and how that should shape us. And the us here is God's people, back then called Israel, today usually called the church. Are you part of that us? Is your trust in the Lord Jesus and you're one of his people? To put it in the language of the children's talk, have you joined his team? By turning to his way and putting your trust in him. Here we have God's words spoken through a man to God's people. That's basically a description of what preaching is. Now, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, if you're not part of Christ's church, please don't switch off. Please don't think there's nothing here for you. Because here we have words from God that tell us about him and how he should shape us. And that is a very big claim. So don't just dismiss it and be closed-minded. Please keep listening. See if the claim has something in it. Now, as so often in the Bible, what we have here in Deuteronomy 6 starts with the really big who God is. And then it brings it down to little practicalities. In this case, what do you talk about while you're walking along the road? So my aim this morning is to start with the big, but to get down to shaping what looks small, but actually is very significant. What do you talk about in ordinary, everyday life? My aim this morning is to change what I'll call our everyday talk. But first, that needs changing us. So we can't start there with the little, we've got to start bigger. So we'll start with this, the basis for everyday talk, the basis for this. Now, did you have to sit through school assemblies when you were younger? Some of you still do, don't you? Enjoy school assemblies? Surely hardly anyone enjoys school assemblies, do they? Especially moralising school assemblies. Well, they tell you what to do, but they don't really usually give a good reason. Work harder, but 
not much good reason given. Value everyone, we've all got value, but they don't give a good reason for that. Because our society hasn't got a good reason for that. Having rejected the real reason, we're made in God's image. Moralising school assemblies, they're a pain in the neck. But the Bible isn't like that. It gives a solid basis for what it tells us. So it doesn't just launch into, here's how you should speak. First of all, we've got to set the basis. And let's start with the basis back then for Israel. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this isn't a statement that that God is just one person, not three. This isn't a contradiction of the Trinity. This is telling Israel, the Lord is your God and he alone is your God. You're not to be like the gods around, sorry, the nations around you who think we've got a God for warfare and we've got a God for farming and there's a God for this nation, there's a God for that nation. No, the Lord alone. He alone is your God. What does it mean the Lord is their God? How did he come to be their God? Well, let's have a look at a few surrounding verses. The first reason is he chose them. If you turn forward to chapter 7 and verse 7. Chapter 7 and verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were this tiny little nation. But he's chosen you. That's how he became their God. But it doesn't stop there. He chose them and he loves them. Verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. He loved them. And he made promises to them. Same verse, he's made an oath. Or we could look back at chapter 6, verse 3. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord The God of your forefathers promised you. He chose them. He loved them. He made promises to them. And then he did something about it. He rescued them. Chapter 6, verse 12. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's rescued people who couldn't rescue themselves because they were slaves and he's brought them out. And now he's going to give them a land, a home with him. Chapter 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you. Chose them, loved them, promised them, rescued them, and he's bringing them to a home to be with him. And because of that, he's their God and they are his people. And because of that, how should they respond? Verse 5. Back into our paragraph we're looking at, verse 5. Here's how they should respond. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You know, people have an idea of the Old Testament as this hard book. It's not bothered about love. It's not bothered about what's going on inside us. It's just get on and do the right thing. Go to the temple, do sacrifices, keep these laws. Harsh book. Oh, we're glad we're in the New Testament. No, completely wrong. God's people in the Old Testament were called to love him with all their hearts. 
The Old Testament is concerned for heart religion, love, whole life devotion. And what's the result of that love? Let's move on to verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Their hearts will want to please him. Isn't it obvious? If you love someone with all your heart, your heart will want to please them. They love God and they say, what can we do to please him? This God who's done so much for us, what can we do to please him? In other words, his commandments are on their hearts. But remember how I started This wasn't just spoken to individuals who happen to be living in tents next to each other in the middle of a desert. It's spoken to a community called Israel. A community made of families. A community based on passing God's message down from one generation to the next. And so they are to do, verse 7, impress these commands on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Verse 7, they're to pass God's message down the generations. They are to make sure that God's word shapes their actions, in other words, their hands, to shape their thoughts, that's why it says foreheads, to shape their homes. That's why it says door frames and gateposts. In other words, they're to make sure that they are a community characterised by love for God that wants to obey him. How did Israel get on at doing this? Do you know the Old Testament? Think of what the Old Testament says about their history from this point onwards. How did they get on at doing it? Well, most of the Old Testament is a record of them forgetting the Lord. Or, oh yes, we'll have the Lord plus these other gods the nations have. One isn't enough, we want more. We want a God that we can see. Let's have a nice statue. Or, yes, we'll turn up to the temple and do the sacrificing, but keep the Lord out of everyday life. In other words, most of the Old Testament is a record of Israel failing. They didn't do this. They needed something more. Something more than just being told to do this. So let's now move forward to the New Testament. There we've had the basis for Israel. Now let's look at the basis for us. And I probably should have had these things up in parallel on the screen, but I didn't get around to doing that, because we're going to go through everything we've just seen about Israel and see parallels for us. So if you remember what you've just heard, hopefully you'll see how we're now going through parallels. Now, the church, down through its history, has written confessions of faith. I've got here something called the Westminster Confession of Faith, because it was written in Westminster. And it's a summary of what the church believes. We occasionally say the Apostles' Creed. It's a very ancient summary of what the church believes. Down through its history, God's people have had these statements of what we believe, sensible and useful to do. And the first one ever, as far as I can make out, the first one ever, is chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's first statement of faith. It is said that there were Jews who, as they went to the gas chambers in Nazi Germany, went saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the sort of thing to bring a lump to your throat. 
And then down through its history, the church has discovered new truths and added to its statements of faith. And in the New Testament, you find other sayings the church had, statements of faith. And the shortest and the simplest, but in some ways the greatest, was this. Do you know it? It's four words. The shortest, simplest, and possibly the greatest statement of faith the church has had is just four words. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Get to the New Testament, you find that addition to, that refinement of this statement of faith. Jesus is this Lord of the Old Testament, now appeared in the flesh. Jesus came and said, I am one, one with the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Christian can say it personally, like the Apostle Thomas can say, he's my Lord and my God. How can we say such a thing? Well, do you remember how Israel could? How could Israel? Because the Lord chose them, loved them, made promises to them, rescued them, and was giving them a home with himself. And the Christian can say that, not just about us as a group, but about ourselves personally. If you're a Christian, you can say it for yourself personally. The Lord has chosen me. Why would he ever choose me? But he has. The Lord loved me. Do you know that lovely verse in Galatians? The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me personally. The Lord made promises to me. He said, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The Lord rescued me because I couldn't get myself out of my sin. I couldn't pull myself out of the pit. As we read in Psalm 30, he's done it. And the Lord is giving me a home with him forever. Fancy being able to make those claims. Who could say such big things? Well, you can, if you're trusting the Lord Jesus. If you've turned from your sin to him, you can. And it's when we know he's done this for us personally that we won't be the failures that Israel were. We'll be changed people. We'll have a work of God in us that will make sure we don't like them just say, yes, yes, we'll do that and then go off and do our own thing. Now, just, because, just like the Israelites, because of all that, we then should love him. Do you remember how it goes? Verse 4, who God is... Verse 5, therefore love him. And it's just the same in the New Testament. What does 1 John 4 say? We love because he first loved us. And just like back then, that love will result in wanting to please him, wanting to obey him. 1 John 5, this is love for God to obey his commandments and his commands are not burdensome. It's not an irksome annoyance to obey him because look what he did for you. He loved you and he gave himself for you. Can you believe his commands would be bad for you? Of course he's going to be commanding things that are good for you. Everything he commands must be good for you. Can you imagine such a God giving himself, coming and dying and then saying, now let's slap on them some commands that will really make life miserable and hard. Oh no, of course, his commands won't be a burden. We'll want to please him. And then we'll remember this. This wasn't just spoken to individuals. It was spoken to God's people, his family, the church. 
And so we are to do verses 7 to 9. We are to have this character. It's not just individual, it's we as a church are to have this character. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's loved us and we love him. And we want to please him and we have his word on our hearts. And we speak it to each other. We encourage each other. We talk to each other. Yes, verse 7 says, parents, impress God's word on your children. But it's not just for parents to children. Remember back then, God's people were a race and things were passed down from one person to another until it got to Jesus himself. But now God's people is the church. And we are to encourage each other by our words so we have this character. People loved by God and loving him. What will we talk about to each other? What? What would be our version of verse 7? Well, it would, it would be just like verse 7. It would be reminding each other what God's commanded us, helping each other to obey him. But here's a New Testament slant on this. I'll read you Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. That's like the New Testament version of Deuteronomy 6. We'll have Christ's words in our hearts, his good news of how he came to save us, his teachings of God's law. He said, I haven't come to get rid of those laws, I've come to fulfil them. And we'll encourage each other. And sometimes we'll need to correct each other. And we'll express our amazement at God and our gratitude to him. There's a New Testament version of this. Now that has tried to go from who God is to the community he's shaping, us, by building, by rescuing people. And now it goes from those high-level concerns down to... How should this shape our everyday talk? The Bible never leaves us just to say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Good, I'm just going to think about how wonderful it is. It then gets down to your daily life and says, how is this going to shape your everyday talk? So, that was the basis for everyday talk. Now let's have the practice of everyday talk. Now I've said this is bringing it down low and small, but everyday talk is not a little thing. It may look a small thing, but it's not a small thing, because words have power. In 1994, between half a million and one million people were killed in Rwanda. Ordinary people in Rwanda took machetes and killed their neighbours if their neighbours came from the other tribe, the Tutsis. How did it happen? How could ordinary people do such a thing to their neighbours? Well, one of the reasons was words. Words have power. And words were going out on the radio stations calling the Tutsis cockroaches. Your neighbours are cockroaches. A pest to be crushed. Words went out stirring up resentment of the Tutsis who had been in the past dominant and were successful saying, cut down the tall grass. Words have power. We've got to take that into account first. We're not talking about a little thing when we think about how should we speak because words influence others. 
And not just what is said, but how it is said. So we'll go from the ultra-serious genocide in Rwanda to the not-at-all-serious. I came home from dinner, for dinner once, and there was a woman around our house. I'd never met her before. I didn't know she was going to be there, but within seconds I knew who she was. Before I'd even moved beyond the doormat, I knew who she was because I heard her speak a couple of sentences. And straight away I knew, that's Seth's mother. (laughs) Our Seth here at church, it's his mother. How did I know that? Because of how she spoke. It was just like him. Not just the outrageous Wigan accent, but the very phrases. She said some phrases, even within her first two sentences. I thought, I often hear Seth say that. She spoke just like him. More accurately, though, he speaks just like her. That's the way round, isn't it? Because he's been influenced by her. We are shaped by the way people around us speak. Take that into account as you speak. You're speaking to people who are shaped by other people. In fact, everyone you talk to lives in a world that is always saying, God is irrelevant. Everyone you talk to is being shaped by a world that is always saying God is irrelevant. It doesn't usually use those three words, but it's always saying that. Everyone you talk to is hearing Satan's spin on every circumstance they encounter. And you can be a corrective to that. Your everyday words can help to put that right. Words have power. Let's use that for good. Let's think about how. First of all, when speaking to Christian brothers and sisters. When speaking to Christian brothers and sisters. Remember, verse 7 isn't just about parents and children. It's about speaking about God to each other in God's family. Israel then, the church now. And what do you notice about when we're to talk about God's word? Verse 7. It's when you sit at home, and it's when you walk along the road, and it's when you lie down, and it's when you get up. In other words, it's ordinary, it's everyday situations, it's all circumstances. Talk about God bringing God's word in just ordinary life. Now, someone might say, how do I do that without just seeming really odd? Most people don't do that. Isn't that just going to seem odd? Is it really that odd? A group of people have just gone to the cinema together and they've watched a film together and they walk out together and they never mention it to each other. They never mention what they've seen to each other. Now, isn't that odd? Surely they would say, did you enjoy the film? What did you think about that part? I wasn't very convinced by how it ended. Wouldn't they? Surely they would. Have something to say about it. Well, here we are, people who claim that preaching is God speaking and we are together listening to God speak. Won't we have something to say about it to each other? Or imagine this, you've been away on holiday and the sun shone and the countryside was beautiful and you enjoyed yourself and don't you usually, when you come home, want to tell people about it? Or do you ever enjoy fellowship with God? Do you ever enjoy what he teaches you in the Bible? Do you ever know his presence? And don't you want to tell your fellow Christian about it? 
If you think, well, if I just suddenly came out with that, that would seem a bit odd, wouldn't it? Well, how about starting at home group when we have a time to share with each other what God's spoken to us? Don't you have anything that God's spoken to you that you can tell others? One more example. Your car is making an odd noise and you're a bit worried what's going on. And you don't know much about cars, but a friend who's a car mechanic drops round. Isn't it a bit odd if you don't ask him what he thinks is going on in your car? So when things are confusing you in the Bible or in the Christian life and a Christian friend drops round, don't they know a bit about the Bible? Might only be a tiny bit. Don't they have some experience of the Christian life? Wouldn't it be quite a good idea to run past them? What's troubling you? And on and on we could go with examples. What I'm trying to show is this. If we are living with awareness of God, if we are thinking about how our daily lives relate to him, if we are serious about listening to him, won't we want to encourage each other to live with awareness of God? And so won't we speak to each other about him and his words? When we're at home, when we're walking along the road, not just here at church, in ordinary everyday life. Speaking to each other, Christian brothers and sisters. Now let's be a bit more specific, as it is in the verse 7, about parents and children. Parents speaking to children. Let's look at verse 7 again. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. How often does that happen? How often do you lie down and get up? Hopefully basically once a day. I hope it's basically once a day that you lie down and then you get up every day. And one way of talking to your children, parents, every day about God and his word is by every day having something that down through church history has been called family worship. A time each day when you get together as a family to worship God. Read some of the Bible together, talk about what it means, pray together, maybe sing some praise to God. You don't need to give an impressive talk about what you've heard. You might just comment, oh, this is what I think we should do about this. One thing that would be helpful Now, I reckon if you only manage that for ten minutes each day, you can still do a lot of good. And ten minutes every day is better than twenty minutes occasionally, because it says to your children, this family takes God seriously. We need him every day. Now, I've said ten minutes, and I'm a bit hesitant, because I know that most of us heard yesterday Nathan Pomeroy talking about ten minutes praying. You think, oh, yesterday we got told this we've got to do for ten minutes. Now, here's another thing to do for ten minutes. Well, all these things we've got to do for ten minutes. Now, Nathan yesterday said to us, look, if you are not giving time to praying to God on your own, you are sinning. And he's right. The Bible says it. I can't say that about this. I'm not aware of the Bible commanding you should do it but I can recommend it as a very good idea. I can say, although I know most of us are busy and it can be very hard to fit in, if everything else is crowding out your family, spending just a bit of time each day together hearing what God has to say, what are you telling your children about priorities? How much better to say, 
We make sure we brush our teeth every day and we're going to make sure that we hear something from God every day. Doesn't that set a better signal to your children? Now, verse 7 is about far more than that. Verse 7 is about, well, what does it say? Talking about them when you're sitting at home, but also when you're walking along the road. In other words, it's saying just in ordinary life, as you go about your everyday activities, talk to your children about God's word. How do you do that? Oh, it's easy, because God's word is relevant to everything. When your children are winding each other up and the tempers are flaring, does that ever happen in your house? What do you say? Ah, your continual winding is getting me fed up. It's just doing my head in. Do you? Ah, It's it's a very easy response, isn't it? It's a very tempting response. It's a very understandable response. But aren't there responses from God's word that are better? Couldn't you tell them something better from the Bible? There are so many options. You can point out about loving your neighbour as yourself and that your brother who's winding you up is actually your neighbour that you are to love. You can talk about doing to others as you would have them do to you. You can talk about a gentle answer turning away wrath. And that actually, you could really calm this down if you just had a gentle answer back. You can talk about the fruit of the Spirit is peace and patience. Now, what does patience look like in this situation? Wouldn't that show it's about obeying God, not just about making your life as a parent easier? Now, make sure verse 7 isn't all, now the Bible is just a stick to hit you over the head with and to discipline you. It's also the Bible as a help to the child feeling bad about something. Who can be told, but God's got promises. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. It can be the Bible as a help to a child feeling confused. If any lacks wisdom, let him ask. Well, let's, let's pray and ask God now. We're not sure what to do in this situation. Let's pray about it. It's the Bible as the answer to those why questions. Why is it raining on our away day and we wanted to go back on the field and play bombs and arrows? Isn't that just annoying? What's the Bible say? Does God control the rain? Does he have good reasons for what he does? It's the Bible as a well-thought-out guide to life. One of my children uh, was singing a song the other evening. She'd picked it up at school, and it was something like, the future of the world is in our hands. Ah, I thought, that's interesting. I said, is the future of the world in our hands? We've read Genesis 1 to 3 in family worship recently. Is the future of the world in our hands? By the way, the answer is yes and no. Yes, because of the exalted role that God's given to humans to care for the world. And no, because God's ultimately in control. Again, on and on we could go with examples. And someone might be thinking, that will make me sound like I'm trying to be a walking theology textbook. That will just really be odd, won't it? No, no, I insist, no, it won't. It's not odd. It will make you sound like someone who believes Matthew 10. There's not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. And so everything you experience is under his control. It will make you sound like someone who believes Isaiah 6. The whole earth is full of the Lord's glory. And so let's praise God for those places you learnt about in geography and those events you heard about in history and every equation you've come across in maths and every discovery of biology. 
It will make you sound like someone who believes Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet, so let's shine its light on every circumstance we come across. This fills everything with new meaning. There's an old hymn, I reckon, puts it well. It goes something like this. Sky above is softer blue, earth beneath is sweeter green, something shines in every hue, that means colour, Christless eyes have never seen. Seeing God in everything brings it to new life and vividness and brighter colour and meaning. You see, this isn't, this isn't another duty to lay on you. This isn't another annoying burden. Oh, we heard about ten minutes yesterday, now I've got another ten minutes to slot in. This is, it's great being a Christian. Because the Lord who made it all is our Lord. And he loves us. And he gave himself for us. Do you love him? Well, doesn't that give you something to talk about? Not just here at church, but in everyday talk. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up.